Here we are with another episode of the Kud Street Advent Calendar Podcast, which Jonathan and I, Jonathan Strawn and I decided to do. When we looked at lists of books we were going to recommend, we thought, let's talk to all the authors of the books we're recommending from 2022. This oh. is Gary Wolf, and I'm delighted today to have Charlie Jane Anders with us. Hi. So and, awesome to be here, and thank you so much. Well, thank you for having provided one of the books that we can recommend this year. Um, so uh, let's start Let's start off telling us about Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak. Now, it is the middle book in a trilogy. Um, is that a problem for you? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. I'm really glad. Like, backing up slightly, I signed a contract to do a young adult trilogy, you know, back in like, I don't know, 2017, 2018. I forget exactly when we signed the contract. Uh, but right after, and at the time we were all like, yes, young adult trilogies are where it's at. And then right after we signed that contract, young adult books made a hard right turn towards only being duologies for the most part. There's a lot of duologies in young adult books now, and I can see why. And part of the reason why you do duologies is because, you know, that middle volume is is a hard, is, mm-hmm. is kind of the hard part. It's like, it's like the Empire Strikes Back. It's like all these other middle volumes where you're kind of deepening the understanding of what's going on. You're adding to the threat level. You're ramping up. And then the third book is where everything is going to pay off. And so, you know, a duology is very neat and tidy. It's like set up, pay off. And then with a trilogy, it's like set up, more set up, pay off. And it's just, you know. But I, I actually love middle volumes. Like I mentioned Empire Strikes Back. Obviously, that is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's something that I couldn't help thinking about as I worked on Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak. Uh, but I think it is challenging. It's challenging to um, to kind of keep that sense of urgency going when you're not actually going to be resolving everything in this book. I think you've got the advantage of working with a space opera form too, because one of the things with space opera is that no matter how big the canvas is, it can be a lot bigger in the next volume. And so volume one ends up with Wow, we're gonna, this this is really scarier than we thought it was. And then at the end of at the end of volume two, we found no, it wasn't as scary as what's coming up next. Yeah, I mean that's the idea. You got to keep like you got to keep like pulling back and showing like oh, there's an even bigger thing. Oh, this is even bigger, and like that can be you know if if you if you overpromise, it can be an issue. But I hopefully people will read the third book and decide that I didn't overpromise. I feel like I found ways to part of the challenge of something like this actually is finding ways to keep it intimate mm-hmm. while making the scale build bigger and bigger and, you know, keeping the actual story human sized in the midst of that. Well, that's what I thought. Uh, I thought you were doing a little bit in the middle volume was yes, the scale, the, the space opera scale is getting bigger, but we're also getting much deeper into the lives of these kids and their anxieties. And so uh, it, it's interesting to read a novel in which on one hand, are we going to save the universe from these ancient demonic things and who gets to room with who and who gets to be in training for a princess? In other words, you, you kind of built up the character part of it as well, um, which is something a classic space operas didn't bother to do much. Yeah, probably true. I mean, in a lot of cases, I love, I love a Van Vogt and I love, you know, um, I never really read E. Doc Smith, but I love, I love a lot of classic space operas, and uh, I love, I love some of Heinlein's juveniles and that sort of stuff. And yeah, it's it's true. I felt like that was the gift of having this middle volume was that I could really, in some ways, not slow down exactly, but there was a little bit of slowing down and kind of just trying to get 
yeah, try to get deeper into the characters, trying to get make something that was a little bit more personal and emotional. And um, you know, and that is in line with Empire Strikes Back, which is also a, a little bit of a slowdown in the middle of the Star Wars trilogy and a little bit more introspective. And you know, I mean, there was a version of this book. I was working on it for a really long time. I think it was the most. It was in some ways the the most time consuming of the three books because I really I wrote so many. I wrote hundreds and hundreds of pages of like these kids living in this space city, which I ended up using a small amount of. But there's just you know. Mm-hmm. There's a version of that book out there where it's like 500 pages longer and we're really getting to like kind of just inhabit their everyday lives in, in this space city in a way. So we're never, are we ever going to see the director's cut then? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I mean, I think to some extent, every one of my books, and I'm sure this is true for other authors, every one of my books has like the stuff that was cut out, the chaff. And in some cases, that stuff is really interesting. And in stuff, some cases, that stuff would make for a really interesting book. It's just didn't you know have a place in in the book that i wrote um and it you know you don't want to overstay your welcome as oh, no. a general rule Although but I've um seen, no i've seen people carve out unused uh, portions of novels and make perfectly good stories and novellas out of them too yeah and that i could do that at some point i mean you know there was a lot that i cut out like some of the characters who don't have povs in the final version of dreams bigger than heartbreak had povs in the earlier drafts and it was just like you know those characters are kind of scattered to the four winds a little bit uh, at parts of the book. And so it felt a little bit unfocused. It felt like everybody's off doing their own thing and there's no kind of central thing driving it forward. And so I kind of had to hone it a little bit to make it feel like you're not just kind of spinning your wheels. Let's go on to one of the questions, which we say we were going to ask everybody. What are you reading these days? Yeah. So as you might know, I think we, you know, you and I talked about this in Chicago. In fact, I've had the high honor of becoming the science fiction fantasy reviewer for the Washington Post, which has been just a joy. And uh, it's, you know, obviously it's got its own challenges, just like any other gig. But what it is doing is forcing me to read a lot of new stuff. And basically, like every month, I review four or five books. And realistically, I read more than that because I'm going to find the four or five books that I really that I really fell in love with, or at least that I thought was were interesting enough to talk about. And so there's going to be books I skip over. So I just finished reading some books that came out actually at the end of 2022, or that I think by actually they've both come out at this point, which I'm going to cover in my January column. That's, I guess, a spoiler. Uh, but I, I'm kind of, I can't wait to rave about them. Um, actually, can we cut me saying I'm going to cover them in my January column? Because let me just back up and say that again, because I don't want the okay. host to get mad at me. I, I don't know how much secret I'm supposed to keep what the books I'm covering are. But I just, I'm just going to start that over. I just, uh, I just, I just finished reading a couple of books that came out actually in late 2022, which I'm just in love with. One is um, The Red Scholar's Wake by Aliette de Baudard, which. That's a book that I'm actually a little perplexed because I, as I understand it, that book was published in the UK by, I think, Gallants or Solaris. I'm not sure. Gallants, perhaps. Gallants book. It's listed as a January book in the US, I think. And oh, I think is it? The book was published by Jabberwocky, which is, I think, is... A- right. But yeah, that's so, also interesting. That's also got a lot of space opera in it. It does. It's a really, really fun space opera and a really fun romance. I was going to say I don't think it's I don't think it has a U.S. publisher. I think it's only being published in the states by Jabberwocky, which is I'm gathering Elliot's literary agency, and they basically put it out as an ebook in the U.S. 
So you can get it in the U.S., but not in bookstores in the United States, which bums me out because it is one of the most fun books I've read in ages. And it's just so in inventive and cool. And like, I love this device of like, have you read it yet? Oh, yeah, I have. I, we, I, we, I talked to Elliot last a couple of weeks ago, as a matter of fact. Okay, great. I love it. I love the like device of like this woman gets kidnapped by pirates and she thinks that she's going to be, you know, mm -hmm. all sorts of horrible things are going to happen. But then the sentient pirate ship comes to her and says, I have a proposition for you, but we need to get married as like a, as like a, basically as a, an arrangement in order to protect you. And, and then it turns into a romance over time. I just love that. The other book that I just read that that's actually a 2022 book is the light pirate by Lily Brooks Dalton. Not that I don't know. Um, I think it's published by a non-genre publisher. She's actually, I had not heard of her before I read this book, but apparently her debut novel was made into a movie by George Clooney and like got a lot of attention. Oh, really? And so she's, she's kind of a literary author, but basically the light pirate, I mean, you know, I'm a big, I be, I'm a big believer as Kim Stanley Robinson will tell anybody who's within <laughs> range that climate fiction is not a genre that like. Climate is just, you know, it's a fact of life and it's a thing that we should be dealing with in our fiction. It's not like a genre in the way that like Space Pirates is a genre uh, because it's just real life. But there are a lot of books that are kind of future looking books about climate right now. And a lot of them, like, I feel like we're just starting to get to some of the really interesting storytelling about climate where it's not just pure like disaster fiction or pure like you know, apocalyptic storytelling. Um, and Lily Brooks Dalton, it's actually, it's a really beautiful, sweet novel. It starts out with the main character being born in the, she's born in the near future during a storm that basically wipes out a big chunk of Florida and kills her mom and kills, she dies in childbirth and kills her brother. This is not really a spoiler because it's the start of the book. And over the course of the book, we see this character who again is born in the near future we see her grow up and eventually we, by the end of the book, she's an old woman. And so through her eyes, we see climate change basically transforming the state of Florida. And, you know, there's a certain point in the book where they're just like, yep, Miami isn't, isn't there anymore. There's no more Miami. Yeah. I, I, and, I think for the last, uh, going back 10 years, I think science fiction writers, at least, maybe not mainstream writers so much, climate change has just been a fact. If you're going to have a near future setting, the Florida archipelago is something i remember seeing probably in Stephen Baxter novels 10 or 15 years ago. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, it's not, it's not a new idea, but anyway, what, what, what Lily Brooks, what, what Lily Brooks Dalton brings to it is it's just like, it's a very kind of grounded, intimate novel mm -hmm. about like basically a handful of characters and it's got this warmth and this, like, it's just, you know, it's got some really beautiful imagery. Um, the one thing about it that I think actually, is a weird thing to complain about and is a speculative fiction author is that her one explicit explicit foray into uh i don't know if it's science fiction or magical realism but the main character the one who's born in the near future develops a strange ability where there are like bioluminescent bacteria that light up whenever she's in the water and they they tell her things and she has like a psychic connection with her and they warn her of danger and stuff and i actually felt like that was unnecessary in the book i was like this could have been a purely grounded near future or mid near future story. And I was like, we didn't really need this magical aspect to it, which is a weird thing for me to complain about, but. Well, it is, but there, there, there's a, there's a point to be made about when you're, when you're, 
talking about climate change, which is a real concern of the future, and introduce magic into the same narrative, aren't you inviting right. a certain class of reader to say, well, it's all magic then, and right. have to pay attention to the climate part of it? I think that is actually what probably bugged me about it deep down. I think I was a little bit bugged by that, you know, because it just, it felt like I really wanted this to be just a grounded, realistic novel. And it is a novel in the end, uh, slight spoiler, but in the end it is about, you know, basically surviving, but also what can we do besides surviving? Like, mm -hmm. what can we do? Like, how do we rebuild? How do we, you know, how do we build community again? And I found it incredibly moving and just beautifully written. And like, even with my one quibble about like the unnecessary magical element, I was like, this is, this is the, you know, mid near to mid future climate change story that I've really have been craving. It's just, it's a beautiful book. Well, congratulations on your new gig, by the way, that's a, that's a and the post has always had uh, good science fiction critics from, from Liz hand all the way. Michael Durda still writes, his column he on. does like and ron charles reviews science fiction yeah. sometimes but yeah they had they had liz hen they had nancy hightower right and they had sylvia moreno garcia and lavi tidhar most recently so you know i feel like i'm i'm inheriting this like pretty uh august uh tradition from what, I, from what i hear from from others we talked to lavi not long i mean I, there's a point at which you probably will want to get back to your own work instead. But the thing that I hear from all of them is that the editors at the Post are not like editors of other newspapers. They don't question what you want to say about science fiction and fantasy. They believe that it probably is pretty good if you say it is. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, you know, we've had lots of conversations. I've been kind of feeling out about like, okay, this person, you know, I have this relationship with this person. Can I cover their book? That's the kind of thing that I'm very careful about checking with them about because I don't want the opinion appearance of you know impropriety or whatever but um yeah they've been pretty chill about like letting me cover what i want to cover they don't want me to cover like too much young adult stuff they're like yes the, the occasional young adult book great but if you if you turn this into a young adult column we'll be mad or we'll be we'll be sad i guess we'll be we'll be i and i they've been so delightful they've been just like so great and so supportive and like it's been just a joy working with the post and everybody there so oh, far wow. Okay, other question we've got. Do you have any seasonal books that you recommend? It doesn't have to be a favorite Christmas book. People have been recommending Krampus books and New Year's books. Is there something you turn to or recommend to people? Like as a as like a end of year kind of yeah. New Year holiday season read? Not off the top of my head. I've never thought about that. I just, you know, I just read whatever's in front of me. I don't really think about that. Especially when you've got books to review on a deadline now. Yeah. I do the same thing. Well, let's go on to the most important question. What are we going to see next from Charlie Jane Anders? And I bet it's going to be Unstoppables. But is there, well, tell us about that and whatever else is in the hopper. Yeah, so the third book of the trilogy, uh, Promise is Stronger Than Heartbreak. Sorry, I'm going to start that over. The third book of the trilogy, Promise is Stronger Than Darkness, uh, comes out in April. And I just saw that it was just added on NetGalley, which is super exciting. And I'm super stoked about that. Um, and basically, Promise is Stronger Than Darkness. I mean, you know, it's 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 the return of the Jedi to Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreaks, Empire Strikes Back, except hopefully putting my own twist on it. Um, I feel like it's in some ways the most fun of the three. I really just kind of cut loose with a lot of like very wild twists and betrayals. And I can't wait for you in particular to read it because I think you will probably get a kick out of it. And one thing about 
this isn't really a spoiler, and it's something I'm going to be talking about a lot as the book is coming out, because I think it's one of the things that's most interesting, especially to sci-fi audiences. I really, like, throughout the, the first two books of the trilogy, I was kind of very, hopefully, subtly laying the groundwork for something that I really double down on in the third book, which is kind of interrogating the trope of the universal translator. Uh-huh. And, you know, um, part of what I kind of, you know, in fact, one of the characters pretty much says this in the third book that, you know, uh, when when we're talking to someone who's actually speaking in Chinese or Portuguese or, you know, Hindi, the translator makes it sound like they're speaking English, but we know that some of the words aren't really the same and that we can't fully understand what they're saying because languages are so different. And those that's earth languages, that's human languages. So if you're communicating with alien life forms from like a very different you know, culture and biology and everything, there's, you know, it's very hard to imagine that you would actually have a translator that would give you a real, like a very, like a a perfect translation of what this other person is saying to you. And in particular with some of the non-humanoid people who our heroes have been kind of showing up and rescuing and protecting, but, you know, they were reliant on this translator to tell us what they're saying to us. Maybe we don't really understand them at all. I don't know. And yeah, I don't know if you've read this or not, but this exact issue comes in for a very intelligent and lengthy discussion in Ray Naylor's novel, The Mountain Under the Sea. Oh, yeah. No, I did read that. I read it. I reviewed it for the Post. And I, I can't remember there being, I know there's some stuff about translating the octopuses, kind of their, sim, their, their, their entire world, their entire universe is so, their, their perceptual world is so different that even if you could, even if there were things like words, which we're not sure of, you're still dealing with something that has a different body shape, lives in a different environment, has different perceptions and so forth. And uh, there, there, there's a little diatribe in the middle of the novel where he kind of says the universe, universal translator uh, is just not going to happen. Kind of the way Stan Robinson in his novel Aurora showed that eh, generation starships aren't going to work. So a lot of stuff that uh, science fiction cherishes is just there for literary convenience, I think. Yeah, and well, I mean, it's funny. I read that book and I remember that, but I, it, for some reason, even though this is an obsession of mine, I was just like, oh yeah, because I, I feel like I read it in the context of like trying to understand these octopuses yeah. and like AI and Evrim, the android and everything. And I, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I obviously have a lot of fun with my universal translator and especially how it lets you, you know, have your correct pronoun no matter what. But at the same time, yeah, I'm interested in interrogating that. And like, there's a thing where we have to work a lot harder to try to understand, um, you know, there's one species in particular where it's like, no, we actually need to take the time to really understand how their language works. And I I'd had some really good conversations with linguists about this. I won't say that they, you know, I think that they would probably be sad if I said that I did exactly that I nailed exactly what they had told me to do, but I did get some input from some linguists who gave me some ideas about how to do this. And it was just, it's really interesting. And I feel like, you know, it's the third book of the trilogy. So you're either on board or you're not at this point. And so I'm like, yep, now I'm just going to like throw this like weird discussion of linguistics at you in a young adult book. And you're just going to go with it because hopefully I built up some goodwill. Well, and and I assume you've had uh, as probably as many adult readers as young adult readers, because one of the things I like about science fiction is that, well, two things I like. One thing I like about young adult readers is that they don't discriminate against science fiction and fantasy. And one of the things I like about science fiction and fantasy readers is that they tend not to discriminate against YA books. Very true. Yeah. I mean, I know some, 
I think I know a minority of science fiction and fantasy fans who kind of look askance at YA because they have some preconception of what it is. But I, I know just as many, if not way more, who, who really love YA books and who, I mean, the distinction at this point, there's so many books which I've talked to the author and the author is like, yeah, this could have been either YA or adult. And we went adult or we went YA because of some factor that was like, you know, there was something about the book that seemed to work better one way or the other. But it's it's no longer, I don't think it's, I think it's a lot more porous than it used to be. Well, I think uh, I've also made the argument before uh, more than once that you look at almost any science fiction novel before 1970 and it could be published today as YA. Yes. And that's, I think that's part of why I wanted to write YA because I felt like the science fiction that I used to love is now increasingly being published as YA. Like the stuff that's just like a ripping great adventure, you know, is is coming out as YA rather than as, you know, because there's some idea now that adult science fiction has to be a little bit more weighty or a little bit uh a little bit more doorstoppery, perhaps. I don't know. Well, um well this, I, I, I congratulate you on ma- managing to do a little bit of both with the with these novels because my sense as an adult reader was Hey, this is good old-fashioned space opera, and it's sort of unapologetic space opera with YA characters in it who are interesting characters, and and who are you know, who, it's a very contemporary novel in the sense of the diversity of the characters, and they're neurotypical characters, and from all over the world, and they're they're modern characters, but they're doing classic space opera things, uh, and that's what made it fun. But I've kept you longer than I said I would, so I I need to let you get on with your day. Uh, our guest today on the Good Street Podcast Advent Calendar has been Charlie Jane Andrews. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. And uh, I was always lovely to chat with you. I hope I hope either I make it back to Chicago soon or you make it back to San Francisco. But uh, love, love to do it. Okay. Yeah.